29 is a global network of over 700 churches worshiping in 50 countries with nearly 30 languages. And we are committed to planting healthy, multiplying churches in every corner of the world. God is a global God and that he works through different ethnicities and cultures and languages around the world. Being faithful to God's great commission is to make disciples and to plan churches. Churches characterized by theological clarity, cultural engagement, and missional innovation. We believe that uh, the church is God's primary mission strategy for establishing his kingdom and his presence on earth. We want to reach people with the gospel, and our reach is amplified through Acts 29 as a network, so more people will know and worship him. Each one of our members has been blessed by all the training that we have received as planters. We want our church to be a praying church and also a church that disciples others. This is what we do and this is who we are. We are people who plant churches. So Acts 29 accomplishes its mission uh, primarily through three things. By assessing potential church planters. We provide continued assistance for churches and leaders through coaching, trainings, and also relational connection. We get to collaborate with the whole Bride of Christ to plant churches, not only just in our areas, but we partner globally to plant churches. And as we partner together with Acts 29, with churches around the world, our efforts are multiplied and the God is glorified when we work together as a church. This is Acts 29. 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 So, what's happening, Riff? How are you? Uh, so my name is Noel, I'm one of the pastors here, and you may remember if you've been around for like the last two months, that we've been working our way through our new mission statement and our renewed core values, and then obviously last week we had Easter, and before we dive into a new series that we're going to start next week, we thought we'd take a time to talk a little bit about church planting, and the reason we're going to talk about this is, is twofold. First is our mission, and the way we've been talking about it the last couple months has necessarily been a about our local community, right? Our local church in the Lansing area and all that we're hoping and dreaming that God would do here. But we're also hoping and dreaming that God will do more through RIV um, through the rest of the world, that we'll be able to proclaim the gospel specifically through church planting. The second reason we're talking about it this week is um, there are over 700 churches in this network that we are part of um, called Acts 29. And this week, the majority of those churches are all taking some time this week to to talk about church planning. And so it actually worked out really perfect. So uh, for those of you who've been here for the last two months or haven't been, um, here is our new mission statement um, that we talked about for the last two months at RIV. We invite everyone to know and enjoy Jesus as we stumble together in our pursuit to love like him. And like I said, we've been talking specifically about how that impacts us here at RIV, but today we're going to talk about how that impacts our attitude and our heart and our mission toward the entire world. 
But I want to start by rolling back the tape to 1989. 1989, I know some of you weren't even born then. Um, 1989, I was a freshman at Michigan State. And I don't remember if it was 1989 in the fall or 1990 in the spring, but it was sometime in my freshman year at MSU, my little hometown church in, up in DeWitt um, hosted a missions conference. And I don't think they'd ever hosted, at least to my memory, a missions conference before. And I definitely never been to one, um, but I was invited to go to it. I thought, well, I'll go. And, and my idea in my brain of what I was going to experience was uh, a, an old guy um, with unfashionable clothes and a slideshow. Do you guys remember slide projectors? Does anybody? Okay, that, you're dating yourself. Uh, slide projector um, on the stage, and then he was going to show us pictures of uh, developing uh, wor the developing world and maybe guilt us into giving some money to missions or something like that. That's what I thought. And so I got there, old dude, check. Um, unfashionable clothes, check. Quickly scan the stage, slide projector, check. And I realized at that moment that I had committed an entire day to this. And I thought, this is going to be terrible, right? Um, and this old unfashionable dude hits the stage. And the first thing he does is he grabbed his Bible. And he said, if you took out every verse in the Bible that had anything to do with missions, your Bible would look like this. And then he went like this, and like 90% of the pages fell out. I, I did not want to cut apart my Bible, so you're just going to have to visualize it. He went like, you know, all the pages went everywhere, and I was like, okay. And then for the rest of this day, this unfashionable old dude with the slide projector worked his way through the Bible from beginning to end, and he showed us why we as followers of Jesus have a clear responsibility to, to, to share the gospel of Jesus with every man, woman, and child in the entire world. Now, I don't remember anything specific that he said, but what I do remember is that by the end of that day, my heart was changed, and it changed the trajectory of my life. And now I can't help but open the Bible and see mission. In fact, it was only a couple of years later that I stumbled into the Kellogg Center at Michigan State, where Riverview was meeting at the time, and I found this church that was excited about the Great Commission, about reaching people for Jesus, and they were excited about church planting. And so right there, I began to see this connection between this global mission that this unfashionable old guy talked about and the idea that we could do church planting in our community, in our state, our nation, and around the world. And so what I want to do today is I want to do something similar to what we did with that guy that day. I won't take the whole day to do it. I'll just take like 20 minutes and work our way through the Bible from beginning to end a little bit and look at some of what the Bible has to say about mission. If you were here for Easter, you may remember uh, we, we told the story a little bit of Moses. Um, and you may remember that Moses is the guy that Jesus or that God used to uh, set the people free from slavery in Egypt. And one of the ways he did this is he went to the Pharaoh, right? And he declared to the Pharaoh on behalf of God, let my people go. There was an old VBS song. You remember that from the little kid? Pharaoh, Pharaoh. Whoa, whoa, let my people go. And then you were supposed to go, huh, I don't know why. Uh, I don't think Moses did that. It wasn't in the Hebrew. Um, but, but basically he went to Pharaoh and he said, uh, God says to let my people go. And then Pharaoh said basically no, right? And so then God sent 10 plagues onto Egypt. And some of those plagues include what I like to call the Michigan Spring uh, Plague, which is hail, right? And then there was the up north plague, which is gnats. 
And then the U-Peace plague flies, right? And so Michigan just has all the plagues, don't we? In fact, when I was a kid, one of my favorite plagues, the grossest one, frogs, is what I remember as a kid. Every spring, you know, there was this pond about a quarter of a mile from my house, and just frogs would come out. They'd be all over our yard. And that was one of the plagues, that everything in all of Egypt was going to be covered by frogs. Let's read about that one. Exodus 8. Starting in verse 1, then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and tell him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go, so that they may worship me. But if you refuse to let them go, then I will plague all your territory with frogs. The Nile will swarm with frogs. They will come up into your palace, uh, into your bedroom, onto your bed, into the house of your officials and your people, into your ovens, into your kneading bowls. The frogs will come up on you, your people and your officials. Can you imagine that? And of course, that's exactly what happened. And I don't know what moment hit when Pharaoh decided he was done with the frogs, if they were like also in his royal toilet or something. I don't know, but he finally just decided he was done with it. Verse 8. It says, Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, appeal to the Lord to remove the frogs from me and my people, then I will let the people go and they can sacrifice the Lord. And Moses said to Pharaoh, you may have the honor of choosing when should I appeal on behalf of you, your officials and your people, that the frogs be taken away from you and your houses and remain in the Nile. Now, what is the right answer to that? Like now would be great, right? What's Pharaoh's response? Tomorrow. <laughs> I don't know why tomorrow. It's like, the, you know what? I've got a busy day today. Frogs can go away tomorrow. Um, Moses replied, as you've said, so that you may know that there is no, uh, uh, and he said tomorrow. Uh, and Moses replied, as you've said, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. So this was why God was going to take these frogs away is so that Pharaoh would know that God is who he says he was. But the purpose of the plagues wasn't just for Pharaoh. In fact, it wasn't just even for Egypt. We see this in chapter 9, the next chapter, where it says this, For this time I am about to send all my plagues against you, says God, your officials, your people, and then you will know there is no one like me in the whole earth. But by now I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague, and you would have been obliterated from the earth. God's like, you think frogs are bad and gnats and flies? I I could have obliterated all of you, like with a snap. I could have sent a plague that wiped you off the face of the planet. However, I have let you live for this purpose, to show you my power and to make my name known on the whole earth. Think about this. After these 10 plagues were over, after the children of Israel were, 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 were able to eventually be free, when people from the whole earth looked at Egypt and they saw the, 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 the landscape after all of those things, the dead frogs and the nets and the flies, uh, they would ask themselves, who could do such a thing? Who would have the power to do such a thing as this? And they would know who has that power that God's name would be known in the whole earth. Now, eventually, Pharaoh let the children of Israel go. 
And the Israelites came up against the Red Sea. And if you've been around the church, you may know this story, that they hit the Red Sea and they're like, now we're supposed to do the Egyptian army is coming up behind them. And so God separates the Red Sea, parts the Red Sea so that they can walk across on dry land and then collapses the sea in behind them. And then they spend 40 years wandering in the desert. God leads them through the desert with a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. And then they get to the end of the desert. And on the other side is a river, another body of water, the Jordan River. And this one, he stands up on ends so that once again they can go through. He begins and ends this desert experience with these two miracles, the Red Sea, the Jordan River. Why would God do it that way? He could have done anything that he wanted. Why did he do it that way? Well, Joshua tells us in Joshua 4, starting in verse 23. He says, for the Lord your God dried up the water of the Jordan before you until you had crossed over just as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed over. This is so that the peoples of the earth may know that the Lord's hand is strong so that you may always fear the Lord your God. There it is again. The reason God did this miracle in the way that he did it, the reason he set the children of Israel free in this particular way, because he could have done it any way he wanted, was so that the whole world would know that the Lord's hand was strong. He did something astounding so that his reputation would grow around the world. All right, let's go to another famous story. David and Goliath. Now, you've probably heard of David and Goliath. You don't even have to be a church person. You don't have to be a Christian to have heard the phrase David and Goliath. And most of us know generally the concept of David and Goliath, right? There's a little shepherd boy that defeats this giant, you know, Goliath. And and the way we talk about the story betrays that we often have absolutely missed the point. When we talk about David and Goliath, this is how we tend to talk about it. We say... I can be David. With God's help, I can beat Goliath. I can do this. I I can beat my own personal Goliath in my life. In fact, I've heard newscasters recently telling the story of Ukraine and Russia using this analogy. It's a David and Goliath story, they say. And every time we miss the point of the story. And we know the point of why David went up against Goliath and why he defeated him the way he did is because Dave told us. I didn't know if he goes by Dave or Davey. He was a little guy, but um, 1 Samuel 17, Davey said to the Philistine, you come against me with a sword, spear, and javelin, but I come against you in a name. Isn't that great? (laughs) Your weapon is a sword, a spear, a javelin. My weapon is a name. Again, in the name of the Lord of armies, the the God of the ranks of Israel, you've defied him. Today, the Lord will hand you over to me. Today, I'll strike you down, remove your head, which he did. We never tell that in Riv Kids. (laughs) That part of the story. I will remove your head and give the corpses of the Philistine camp to the birds of the sky and the wild creatures of the earth. And then all the world will know that Israel has a God. The point of the David and Goliath story is not that you can overcome great odds and beat the giants in your life. The point of the story is knowing that there is a great God. That David didn't go after Goliath to prove that he could beat Goliath, but to defend God's name and to proclaim to the world that there is a God that is more powerful than any puny giant. All right, let's look at one more Old Testament passage that a lot of people take comfort in um, because they take it out of context. 
And so I have to say, um, this is a comforting passage, just not the way we tend to think of it. This is, this is what happens. We tend to Americanize this passage, and what we do is we Americanize it by taking only a part of the passage, and we put it on a magnet on the refrigerator. I'm going to read it out of a different translation. That's why I have a stack of Bibles here. Because this is the most common translation amongst which we've heard this. Uh, Psalm 4610. I'm going to start reading it. As soon as you know it, yell it. They, they beat me to it. As soon as I say it, yell it out. Be still. Great. Give me the rest of the verse. Uh-huh. Have you heard this one before? Have you heard the rest of the verse? Because we're Americans, right? We like this part. We like this. 99 times out of 100, when I hear this verse, this is all I get. And people talk about it in a way to say, well, maybe um, what I need in my life is just have a personal quiet time, a devotional time where I sit down quietly every day and I pray to God and I read my Bible, which is a good thing. That's not what this means. Sometimes we say, well, maybe I should get to a quiet spot and, and listen for God's uh, spoken, you know, his, his still small voice to me, and he'll help me with my comfort or anxiety. And that kind of can maybe be part of an application to this. But again, it's not what the passage is about. Now, don't get me wrong. You can and should apply this passage in your life personally. In fact, we're going to do it in a second. But if you stop there, you are going to miss the point, And the point is so much grander than what you get out of this chunk of the passage. I want you to grab the whole meaning. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the whole thing to you. Don't worry, it's 11 verses long. I want you to grab its meaning, but I got to give you a couple pieces before you go in there. In this psalm, there's three times where the word Selah shows up. Now, Selah is a weird word. It's a word that we don't know exactly what it means for sure. We can't argue for what it means, but it probably means to pause, to stop. Um, and, and since psalms were a, a hymnal of sorts, it was a hymn book that people would sing these, these prayers, it, it may have meant, and I think it did mean, for the musicians and the singers to just stop for a second um, as they're going through this. And I love the Amplified Bible puts this little commentary in there, and they said, pause and calmly think about that. So what we're going to do is when I'm reading through Psalm 46, whenever we hit the word Selah, I'm not going to read the word Selah, we're going to Selah. We're going to pause, and we're going to think about that. Now, second thing I want you to do is this is where I want you to get personal. I want you to personally consider any trouble or anxiety, any difficulty you're facing in your life right now. Bring it to the front of your mind. Because if we can't apply this stuff, right, it's not helpful to us. But I want you to consider the truths of the entire psalm as I read it to you, and I'm going to read it in the translation we normally teach out of, so you're going to have to catch where it says be still, because it's a little different. Here we go. Ready? You got your difficulty in your mind? Oh, wrong one. Stacks of Bibles. Bibles on Bibles. Here we go. <laughs> Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a helper who is always found in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not be afraid. Though the earth trembles and the mountains topple into the depths of the seas, though its waters roars and foams and the mountains quake with its turmoil, there's a river 
Its streams delight the city of God, the holy dwelling place of the Most High. God is within her. She will not be toppled. God will help her when the morning dawns. Nations rage. Kingdoms topple. The earth melts when he lifts his voice. The Lord of armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. Come, see the works of the Lord who brings devastation on the earth. He makes wars cease throughout the earth. He shatters bows and cuts spears to pieces. He sets wagons ablaze. Stop fighting and know that I am God. Exalted among the nations, exalted on the earth. The Lord of armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. That's the whole psalm. Did you see the bestill part? This translation translated it, stop fighting. Other translations translate it, cease striving. Here's what the psalmist is saying. He's calling on people who look at a world around them that is ravaged by natural disasters, by war, by conflict, And he's saying, in this crazy world of natural disasters and war and conflict, you be still. Stop striving. Stop fighting. You can place your hope in me when everything else is crazy. See, this is not about running into your your study and having your personal devotion time. It's about your attitude and your posture in a world that is crazy. So a couple days ago, I was in Kentucky with my pastor friend from Scotland, who's now a pastor in Kentucky, which is crazy. Um, you should hear his accent. He, he sounds South African because he is Scottish in Kentucky. It's cr- anyway, and we, were, we met a Russian evangelical pastor in Kentucky, just a couple days ago. And this guy was telling us, he's trying to get back into Russia, and there's this huge impact in Russia on the Russian churches because of the conflict, the war in Ukraine right now. And, and the main issue that they're facing is that the churches are being told, you must, um, you must adopt a party nationalist line in your churches. And they're, not, they're trying to figure out how to do this as their people are being drafted and conscripted into this war. And, and, and the thing that struck me about this Russian pastor, he was calm. He was peaceful. He was hopeful. Be still, this one, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. This hit me this week. I'll tell you why. Here I was in Kentucky with my friend from Scotland being encouraged by a Russian pastor who in the middle of war was still. It was peaceful. And his confidence in God was causing God's name to literally be exalted in another nation throughout the earth. 
See, that, that's what this psalm is about. You see, the end result isn't our comfort. Hey, we do get comfort, right? This, this passage should comfort us. We have comfort and we have hope and we have beautiful peace, but it points to an ultimate outcome of God's fame being known throughout the earth. That everywhere we go and we have peace and confidence and we're not striving and we're not fighting, but we're still and we're confident in God and his power when the world is crazy around us, his fame will grow. That's just a few verses in the Old Testament. Let's go to the New Testament. Jesus in the book of Matthew um, is mourning the fact that the Israelites, the Jews, had missed him as the Messiah, as the king that they had been waiting for. He'd offered them a kingdom. They'd rejected that kingdom. And now here were his words to them. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. He's talking to the city, but he means the people. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, what Jesus is doing here as he's quoting Old Testament messianic prophecies to declare to the Jews that he is the king and that they were supposed to say when he came, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They were supposed to say that about him, but they didn't. And so what he's saying now is just like he came the first time um, to earth as a baby and went to the cross and uh, died a, you know, after a sinless life, he, just like he had come the first time, he will one day return again. And in that day, everyone will declare, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The whole earth at that moment will know that he is God, that he is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. And so this led to the disciples asking him, what the heck are you talking about? Basically, that's the null standard translation. Um, because they were expecting him to jump up on a throne in Jerusalem, to set up his kingdom right there. And, and so they get into this discussion with him. And he starts telling them about what's going to happen in the end times. That there'll be natural disasters and wars and conflicts. And just like those that always happened... Those are going to still keep happening. And for 2,000 years, Christians, every time there's earthquakes and, and natural disasters and wars and conflicts, we're always saying, this is it. Is this when Jesus is finally returning? Is this going to be the end? And Jesus actually tells us right here in, in chapter 24, verse 14, when the end will be. He says, this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in all the world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. People want to know when the end will come. When will everything be set straight? When will there be no more natural disasters and war? and conflict. When is that day finally going to come? And Jesus says it happens after the good news of the kingdom is proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. This is why we live on mission. Because we have been invited to be a part of this. The Apostle Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians. He says, for the love of Christ compels us since we have reached the conclusion that one, since one died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. See, Jesus died for all. And in that sense, Jesus made everyone savable. Let that settle in for a second. There's no one who is beyond salvation. We can proclaim the gospel to everyone because Jesus died for all. That is the extent of his love. And the more we get that love inside of us, the more it compels us to talk to the people that we love about the God that loves them. 
This passage is, is, is saying we no longer live for ourselves. We love because we have been loved. When the nations rage around us, we are still. When there is still in this world natural disasters and war and conflict, we are still still. But now we proclaim a message of reconciliation. And we now proclaim the message of this king that had come and that would one day come again. And I love how Paul says it a couple verses earlier because I like to work backwards sometimes. He says, therefore, since we know the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade people. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your consciences. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but, but giving you an opportunity to be proud of us so that you may have a reply for those who take pride in outward appearance rather than in the heart. For if we're out of our mind, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. So this is what he's saying. He's like, we try to persuade people. The, the love of Christ compels us. So we, we try to tell people about Jesus. And it is, by the way, fundamentally unloving for us to, to not tell people about Jesus. If we really believe in him, if we really believe that he's the one that has come to save, if we really believe that he is the king, then we persuade people to follow him. And Paul says, because the love of Jesus compels us and the fear of the Lord, which is not incompatible, right? He knows that one day he'll stand before Jesus and he'll tell Jesus about how he lived his life because of the love for people, the love of Jesus, and because the fear of the Lord, he's compelled to tell everyone, to persuade everyone he can to follow after Jesus. And the primary way that Paul did this is he traveled to places where the name of Jesus was not known and he told people about Jesus. And as people turned their lives over to Christ, they would plant churches. They would start new churches. Every time you make disciples, you plant churches. Those two things are linked together. Planting churches is about evangelism, and evangelism is about planting churches. These two things are connected. And so Paul and, and his team, uh, Timothy, they would go out and they would plant these churches and preach the gospel. And that same method of disciple-making and church planting has been going on for 2,000 years, and we get to be a part of that even in our church. Like I said earlier, we are this week with a, like 700 churches around the world talking about this thing. We're partnered together with people in at least 40 different languages scattered across this world talking about church planning this week. And I love what Paul said in this passage. I don't know if you caught it right at the end. It's that weird part at the end where he said, uh, he said, if we are out of our mind, it is for God. If we're in our right mind, it is for you. <laughs> I love this phrase. What he's basically saying is there are people who are like looking at just outward things and they're like, Paul, you're just traveling around, planting churches, doing all this stuff. You're trying to make it about you. What's up with you and Timothy? You guys are being rabble rousers, the whole thing like that. And he's like, listen, let me just tell you what we're doing. <laughs> let me tell you everything that God has done through us. And if we're in our right mind, you may think we're crazy. You may think we're bragging. You may think we're trying to boast about all the stuff that we've been doing. He goes, but if we're in our right mind, it's for you. If we're out of our mind, well, at least we're out of our mind for God. That's basically what he's saying. <laughs> and so... Taking a cue from Paul, I want to close a little bit to talk about Riverview's history with church planting over 45 years. This summer, going into the fall, is our 45-year anniversary as a church. So you can clap for that. Now, here's the thing. For those of you online, I apologize because you're not going to be able to see this. But everybody else, that crew right there, that's the church planting crew. There are 12 people that came here in 1977 to plant what has become Riverview. And the very first night that Riverview was planted, 
by these 12 people who, by the way, had never stepped foot in this state before in their entire lives. The very first night, they went around East Lansing and just started telling people about Jesus because the love of Christ compelled them. They had no other choice. So they went and they began telling people about Jesus and they met a young lady, a teenager who was a professor's daughter. And she came to Christ. And then she ended up marrying a guy who joined Riv a couple of years later. And then he became a pastor. And then we sent him out and they went and planted some churches. And then they came back and Greg Veneta and Christine Veneta are back here at Riverview. He's one of our pastors now. Our first convert at Riverview is still at Riverview 45 years later. <laughs> and in the course of that 45 years, God has done something amazing. Greg and I sat down and we calculated as best as we could. And I know I'm missing some stuff. But here's what I can tell you. In our 45-year history, we have at least 55 churches in our direct downline. We have four venues around the Lansing area. We have 25 daughter churches. We have 16 grandbaby churches. We have nine great-grandbaby churches. And we have one great-great-grandbaby church. Now, there are probably more than that, but that's all that we could verify. <laughs> In addition to that, we financially supported at least 15 churches in the last couple of years that we can count that we've helped, and we've, we've helped 39 church planning residents in Michigan, Brazil, and Chicago um, to get, get ready to plant their churches. By my count, Riverview has now planted churches that have planted churches in at least seven countries. I can only tell you about five of them. Because two are countries where we're planting churches and we probably, it might be illegal in that country to plant churches. So we are, we at least have U.S. and Canada and Germany and Brazil and Poland are the ones that I know. So I want to show you something really cool. I want you to check this out. So we began to put a chart together because we thought, let's see if we can track this. So this is Riverview's church planning timeline as far as we know. So 1977, Riverview was planted in East Lansing. And then we went through the kind of this crazy church planning days. Like early on, our whole church planning strategy was, oh, you love Jesus and we throw you at a city. And so um, a lot of that meant that we had some great stuff. Like these churches here in the black um, all still exist. Any church in the red doesn't exist anymore. We were all passion and not a lot of strategy. These are the years that these church plants stayed in existence there. But you'll notice even people in Ann Arbor, they went on to plant churches. Isn't that cool? And so then here, planted a church in Chicago, went to Dusseldorf, went there to, uh, all the way over to Cologne and Berlin. We planted a church in Kiev, Ukraine with our own Eric Thomas, who they went on and planted two more churches in Kiev. And now Eric is now back with us. Planted a church in Columbus, doesn't exist anymore, but that one helped plant a church in Orlando. Um, then we planted this building out here. We just thought we'd put that out there. Rivs MSU venue um, on campus, planted a church in Detroit, Rivs Rio Town venue, and started kicking into church planting again right around 2014. Again, cool story. Pittsburgh doesn't exist anymore, but the church that they planted did because that's sometimes what happens, right? All of these churches were planted through our downline. And you'll notice we've got some in Brazil, 
East Asia. Two of ours in East Asia shut down um, because of um, just a lot of things. That's a really hard place to plant churches. Um, but all of these churches over here are ones that we could find that we supported, but we didn't plant, but we just thought they were great. And so we gave them some money and helped plant what they were doing over there. And so this is our 55 church downline that doesn't even count all of these over here. Now, the reason I wanted to share this with you is I wanted you to know that you are a part of this. Riverview gives 10% of our finances to church planting. So all of these are coming from your support. So when you give to Riv, one-tenth of everything you give goes right back out the doors to help plant churches. Even during COVID, um, when our giving numbers, you know, everybody, all churches, you've heard the story, giving numbers went down, our, our, ten, our giving went down about 14%. We continued to keep our commitment to church planting because we wanted to make sure these churches got started to continue to go. So earlier this year, I got a chance to finally break free from our country um, and COVID restrictions were down. It was a perfect time and COVID numbers were down in Brazil. So I took off and went to Brazil for a couple weeks. And I traveled across Brazil and I visited a lot of the churches that we've helped start because at RIV, our primary areas that we target are around the Midwest in Michigan, South, uh, East Asia, and Brazil. So I went and visited a lot of our church plants down there. And while I was there, I got the chance to preach at the three-year anniversary of a church that we helped plant. Um, and while I was there, I, I talked with Tony, who's the pastor there, and his wife, Bobby, about uh, the, the impact that Riff has had on their church. And they told me their story, and it just blew my mind. And I asked them if they would be willing to share their story with you. So I apologize for the really crappy video work. It was me um, on an iPhone. Um, but um, they wanted to share their story with you. The name of their church is Igreja Nova Cidade, which means New City Church in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And they wanted to share with you the impact that you guys have had on them. And my hope is just to end this on an encouraging note um, that, and that you're as encouraged as I am uh, by this. And so I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to let Tony and Bobby uh, wrap up for us. So Heavenly Father, we thank you um, um, for Jesus. We thank you for um, the, the wonderful grace of Jesus, as we sang earlier. And we just thank you that that wonderful grace uh, compels us, compels us on mission to tell people about Jesus right here in our city and around the world. We thank you for all that you're continuing to do in and through our church planning network. We thank you for the 700 plus churches and 40 plus languages um, that are preaching the gospel this morning. Um, and we just, we thank you that we got to be a part of a little bit of that. And so um, we just pray all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Olá, gente. Eu sou o Tony. Estou plantando a Igreja Nova Cidade aqui na Vila Leopoldina, em São Paulo, Brasil. Eu sou a esposa do Tony. Sou... Meu nome é Bárbara. No final de 2018, quando nós fomos plantar a igreja em especial, é, fizemos um desafio de juntar o recurso necessário para começar essa plantação de igreja, para dar o um start ali no culto público. E foi justamente nessa ocasião que nós tivemos uma grande surpresa, mas quem vai contar é a minha esposa. Foi esse dezembro é, muito especial para a gente, porque a gente não tinha condição nenhuma de iniciar uma igreja. É, apesar do grupo base estar acontecendo, 
é, a gente recebeu então a notícia de que a igreja ajudaria, é, a gente teria essa ajuda externa é, vindo a partir então do Nolan. Eu fiquei muito emocionada quando a gente recebeu essa notícia, porque a gente não tinha nenhuma cadeira, a gente não tinha nada no espaço, e aí Deus enviou através do Papai Noel, como a gente brinca, é, que veio essa grande bênção para gente, né? E, e que a partir dessa oferta especial é, a gente conseguiu então montar todo o espaço, preparar todo o espaço para iniciar assim, então oficialmente a nossa igreja. Nós precisávamos de um valor específico e fizemos uma vaquinha online para conseguir levantar esse recurso. A questão é que quando recebemos a notícia do Noel que enviaria um valor inicial para nós era exatamente a quantia que nós precisávamos para iniciar. Então, o mesmo valor que a gente precisava foi o valor que a Rive Church, por meio do Pastor Noel, enviou para nós. Isso marcou muito a nossa história até aqui. E chegou a oferta. E aí foi possível começar a comprar as coisas. É, foi muito especial. Né? A gente chorou muitos dias. Muitos dias seguidos. Muitos dias Agradecendo a Deus, porque o que a gente estaria muito perto de, de desistir, porque aos nossos olhos humanos, era inalcançável, é, Deus realizou. Né? Então, eu, eu nunca imaginei é, viver o que eu vivo hoje. É, antes tinha uma vida completamente diferente. É, de abrir mão de carreira profissional, de abrir mão de muitas coisas que eu poderia ter hoje, é, mas para viver isso, para viver essa plantação. Então, quem me conhece de anos atrás, da época de faculdade, é, não acredita na mudança de vida que eu tive, né? no que eu vivo hoje, a forma que eu vivo hoje. Eu fico muito emocionada de falar e de lembrar dessas histórias é, e de viver cada dia, né? Cada dia que a gente pode compartilhar um pouco disso com a nossa igreja e ouvir as pessoas falando é, o quanto a gente tem sido importante na, na vida delas de alguma forma, que a gente é uma sementinha na vida delas. É, o quanto, mas hoje também... Não viveria mais o que eu vivi. É isso agora para frente, so, né? Muito bom passar é, alguns dias contando a nossa história. A gente vê o quanto a nossa história está incluída na história do Evangelho. Estamos muito felizes por tudo que Deus tem feito até fazer algo como um empréstimo a Deus, a gente nunca perde. We will never lose. A gente nunca perde. We never lose.